This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. As usual, we are not doing a ton of stat-heavy topics right now. We're talking about some fun baseball things we've come across. We are going to talk about uh, Justin Turner's idea for the home run derby. We're going to talk about the passing of Al Kaline and some other underrated Hall of Famers. We're going to count up Dusty Baker's toothpicks, but we're going to start with the best player bracket best ever player bracket sort of like an ncaa style march madness tourney attorney of the best ever uh baseball players as voted on by you the fans and matt it seems like we are about to have a winner and we have some thoughts about that winner (laughs) (laughs) yeah if you haven't been following this was put together by um by paul casella one of the uh, reporters on our staff and basically we picked um, 16 pitcher seasons and 16 hitter seasons, and we put them in a bracket. So one side was hitters, one side was pitchers, and we tried to get a mix of. Um, it was a, you know, kind of our research group kind of picked the seasons, and we tried to get a mix of you know purely the best offensive seasons, but also like some of the more iconic seasons. So right, so even though like maybe by like advanced metrics, Joe DiMaggio's 1941 isn't the greatest season ever, it's still an amazing season and an iconic season. It kind of needs a place in this conversation. So. That's where it is, and um, we've been voting over the last five days or so, and the finals were today, and it ended up being Babe Ruth's 1923 season on the hitter side and Bob Gibson's 1968 season on the pitcher side, and Gibson took home the title. Uh, as you, For those who are unfamiliar, that is the season in which uh, he had a 1.12 ERA uh, which is the lowest ever, I think, for a qualified season, or at least in the modern era. And it is by all he was the Zion Award winner. He was the MVP. There is no question that it is an all-time great season. But I have to admit, it leaves me a little, a little hollow. And I feel like it's definitely kind of speaks to some of the problems that baseball kind of has in moving forward because of how much. Fans almost can't help themselves, but worship the past. And I'm curious to hear what you think about this. Well, I know now that I'm going to have to title this podcast in iTunes, Why Matt Myers Hates Bob Gibson. (laughs) I do not hate Bob Gibson. I used to play micro league baseball on my Apple IIc, and it was like a simulator with old time stats. And Bob Gibson was like the most unhittable pitcher. I used to love playing with Bob Gibson. I can appreciate Bob Gibson and his 1968 season. That is the oldest thing I've ever heard, by the way, the Apple IIc reference. Um, I think you're right. So I have not been following this bracket super closely until tonight. And my guess is that people think of Bob Gibson and they think of that 1.12 ERA, which is obviously insanely good. And the thought process just sort of ends there, right? It's like, oh, wow, that's great. 1.12. Who can do better than that? No one does. That must be the greatest pitching season of all time. Without 
you know, going into the context of what that means. Um, if I can steal your line, as you already said off the air, that's the year of the pitcher. They literally changed the physical dimensions of the mound because it was just too easy to pitch after that, you know? So it's like, you can't say that his 112 uh, without context is better than low ERAs in other years. In fact, you can do metrics like this with ERA plus, right? You can compare to the league average for that year and park adjust and everything. And his 112 ERA that year, had an ERA plus of 258. Now that's amazingly good. Even so, league average is 100. But if you were to look at, say, Pedro Martinez 2000, which uh, I think is probably the greatest ever pitching year, uh, he had a 174 ERA, which is higher. But his ERA plus was 291, which is which is better. I'm having a hard time thinking of a scenario where I would choose Bob Gibson 1968 just over Pedro 2000, uh, much less the best season of all time. So I do think it's partially just this, you know, you've been thinking about the season for 50 years, that one crazy number stands out, but it's, it's like out there in the ether without any context attached to it. And I don't know, it was a great season. I'm not taking anything away from it. There's so many good pitchers now, like, and, and so many great pitching seasons we've seen over the last 50 years. And I don't know if I'm putting that one in the top 10 person. I mean, even by ERA plus, uh, as you mentioned, the Pedro season 2000 is ahead of it. We've already also seen Greg Maddox have two seasons in 94 and 95 that were ahead of the, the Gibson season. And one thing I want to make clear when I talk about some of these older seasons, like I'm not going to, I would not go out and say like, oh, you know, could, you know, Bob Gibson be dropped in 2019 and succeed? Like, obviously not. Like, that's something, like, I do think that players should be compared against their peers. Like, I think that's a totally reasonable standard. So, like, I'm not saying, like, oh, the reason why I think, you know, Pedro from 2000 is better than Bob Gibson is because, like, you know, Pedro was throwing 98 and Gibson was probably throwing, like, 91. That's not why I'm saying that I think Pedro is better. I think that, like, the circumstances of the game at that time were so different as Mike alluded to, the year of the pitcher, they literally lowered the mound. And like also in the 60s, part of the reason that pitching was so dominant was like there was a ton of expansion. So like dominant pitchers could beat up on a lot of like watered down competition. And additionally, that was like the, the, the growth of night games. So like there's a lot of like, you know, that's like part of the reason why people like part of the reason for Sandy Kopak's dominance in the 60s was like Dodger Stadium night games were kind of like notoriously hard to see. And it doesn't mean he's not a great pitcher, but it just means the circumstances were aligned perfectly for him to dominate in a way that kind of hadn't been done before with like bad lighting, high mound expansion. Like the, it was a perfect recipe. And similarly, like when I look at Babe Ruth, like I don't want to take anything away from Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth obviously dominated his competition in a way that like no one really else has, I guess, you know, you know, Barry Bonds kind of did, but like Babe Ruth was competing against a pool of competition that was basically like, you know, the, the league was still segregated. So it was just white players. And it was mostly players like East of the Mississippi. Like, can you imagine what Mike Trout's numbers would look like if the player pool was still that? I mean, it'd basically be like him against double-A competition, right? The equivalent. So, like, I think that that sometimes gets lost in these conversations. Is like baseball has become this, like, global game. That even, like, Bob Gibson, that wasn't really dealing with, like, the best players from Cuba or the best players from the Dominican Republic or Japan or Korea. Like, it's just the, the – to dominate now is so much tougher just because of, like, the pool that we're, we're drawing from. And some reason I always say that, like – you know, what Michael Phelps was doing to me doesn't pales in comparison to what Usain Bolt did. Like, how many people actually are competitive swimmers? How many people actually ever try and see, like, oh, how am I good at this? Like, can I, you know, I'm, should I try and, like, do this at the highest level, even compete in, like, a youth tournament? 
like so as good as Michael Phelps was or is, like the pool of people, no pun intended, trying to be competitive swimmers is tiny compared to like, oh, everyone knows like when you're a kid, everyone runs and like the fastest kids are encouraged to just like keep playing sports that allow them to be fast. And like, I'm pretty confident that like Usain Bolt is literally the fastest person that's walked the earth. Whereas like, I don't know, like most of the best athletes in the world never even try swimming. So we like honestly really don't know like how good Michael Phelps would be if like literally everyone tried that sport. And I feel like that's some something that gets lost in the conversation around baseball eras. It's just like the, the, the group of people that being pulled from is just so much more vast now. So to be able to dominate in this era is just so much more impressive than 50 or 60 or 80 years ago. If you were filling out this, this bracket yourself, like for me, the, the only two names that I could come up with uh, that would be in contention for the greatest single season of all time would be Ruth and Bonds. And obviously there's a hitter's side, so they could not have both gotten to the finals, although Ruth did. It looks like Bonds' 2001 was beat out by Lou Gehrig's 1927. Uh, I guess a year you could argue Lou Gehrig wasn't even the best hitter on his own team. So there's that. And then, you know, as far as the pitching side goes, where did Pedro? Oh, okay. So Pedro 2000 actually did face Bob Gibson 1968. And this had to have just come down to ERA, right? And I guess of the 23 or so thousand people who at least voted in the finals. Um, do you, do you imagine they skewed older and probably grew up with Bob Gibson? Like, is that, is that an aspect of this? I just think that this is like, you know, something that I think baseball is always, it's a challenge that this, this, the sport is always faced is that like the tradition is sort of like our, like the history and the tradition is like kind of a gift of the game, but also a little bit of a curse that sometimes prevents, I think a lot of fans from moving forward. We just like, so, you know, worship the history and the grades which is great which is awesome like there's nothing wrong with with appreciating the history but i think sometimes it gets lost is how good the current the current players are like you know and like to use like an nba example no one would, and no one would ever say like oh like elgin baylor's like 68 is better than lebron like 2000 you know 12 like no that just doesn't you know it just doesn't happen um in the same way that it does that it does in baseball you know even still yeah best offensive season it's hard like babe ruth 23 you know, even accounting for all things I said before, like his dominance was so incredible that like I could see making a case for for Ruth in this in this bracket. But for me, the pitchers, the, the final two pitchers were Gibson sixty eight and Kofax sixty five, which I just think is kind of funny when you consider that Kofax beat Randy Johnson two thousand one and Pedro two thousand. Like right, like what Johnson and Pedro were doing at the end of the the, the the turn of the century when hitting was just like out of control. And they were dominating, you know, like it was in, in 2000, Pedro like led the league with like a 174 ERA and the next best in the AL was like three, five, you know, it was like, it was just like, it was so, what he was, it was just, just outrageous. And whereas like in the sixties, there was like eight pitchers who, you know, in a year who'd have like ERAs like around two. So it just, it's just, you know, it, it's just a different, just a completely different environment. And I just, you know, I want, this is not a knock on the old timers because i love the history that's a big part of what brought me into the game as a kid reading like you know baseball history books it's just like i wish fans would be you know I, I want people to appreciate more what we have now because like the talent's just insane you know as we, we talked about last week watching you know watching a game from the 80s compared to watching a game now there's i mean there's benefit you know there's things about the games from the 80s the pitchers worked quicker the ball wasn't playing more and i understand the arguments for like wanting to see more of that but just like the sheer athleticism of what you see now on the field, it's just, it's just insane. Did this bracket have a sense of humor 
And what I mean by that is I'm looking at some of the matchups and a lot of them seem sort of random, like the 710 for the hitters, Willie Mays 1965 uh, versus Rogers Hornsby 1924. No real connection. There's a bunch like that. But if you look at the 512, Ted Williams 1941 versus Joe DiMaggio 1941, 89 is Musial 1948 versus Albert Pujols 2009, presumably just to make Cardinals fans tear their hair out. <laughs> Um, yeah, there was a little bit of fun of that. Also having Bonds 2001, the year he broke the home record versus McGuire 98, the year he broke the home run record. So it was like, there was some, there was some of that, especially on the, on the pitchers, on the hitter side of like trying to, to match up some of those. So it's like the, the, the pairs kind of, uh, kind of made sense. Um, we have some fun things to get to with Justin Turner and Dusty Baker, but first a little bit of sad news earlier today, we learned that Tigers Hall of Famer Al Kaline passed away at the age of 85, um, 18 time all-star, 10 time gold glover. You know, played for the Tigers. I didn't know this until I looked this up. Never once played a day in the minor leagues. Debuted to the Tigers at 18, and he played with them through age 39. Uh, 2,834 games to the Tigers. Never won in the minors, which is really impressive. Uh, hit 399 home runs and is really like a, a Detroit legend. You know, And when Matt and I were talking about this, you know, everybody knows Al Kalon is a Hall of Famer if you, if you don't. You know, if you're not a Tigers fan, you start thinking of the Tigers as soon as you hear his name. And yet, does it sort of feel like we don't necessarily put him in that inner pantheon of Hall of Famers? And is that a mistake? Like, is he an underrated player? I, I, I didn't really have an opinion on this at first. And the more I look into it, I feel like the answer pretty clearly screams yes to me. Yeah, I realize I'm about to contradict a lot of what I just said about him. But um, in a weird way, Al Kaline does feel kind of underrated to me. And I think part of for the same reason that what I was saying before about Koufax and, and Gibson maybe a little overrated is, is the fact that like he was doing like a lot of like the best years of his careers were in the sixties at a time when like pitchers were totally dominating. So there's that. And the fact that he was just like insanely consistent, like it was just like every year it was basically, I'm looking at his baseball reference page. It was like basically every year from 1955 um, and or until like, 1960 you know 1971 it was basically like 170 hits you know hit like you know 290 370 500 just like year in and year out somewhere like within that within that realm getting mvp votes and let's see one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen different years he got mvp votes um and to speak to the context you know talking about before you know 1968 the year of the pitcher he hit 287, 392, 428. Oh, OPS of 820. That doesn't sound so great. But OPS plus, which is adjusted for the run scoring environment, it's 146. So like basically like, oh, this guy was one of the best hitters in the league with an 820 OPS. Um, so he definitely is one of those guys. So I think just nationally, for whatever reason, maybe he just doesn't have like that kind of like iconic moment that a lot of other Hall of Famers have or that season. He never actually won the MVP. He finished second twice and third another time so he doesn't have you know he didn't never won mvp um he finished with 399 home runs although he did get 3,000 hits he got 3,007 so i think that was kind of his you know his calling card that kind of put him over the top and puts him in that, that 3,000 hit club but he doesn't feel quite in that level of you know players that, that were kind of his peers you know your maze and mantle etc yeah on that note you're just talking about the uh, the park adjustments and, and league average for 1968 that was mickey mantle's last year and he hit 237 385 398 and he retired he basically said i can't hit anymore 
237, 385, 398. Do you know what that came out in the wash to in OPS plus? Well, remember, 100 is league average. Like 105. 143. <laughs> what would you just say? 105? Yeah, wait, wait, wait if K was one, if his OPS was 820, what was, what was Mantle's OPS? 782. And it was one, I guess it was because of the park. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it must have been park effects. Yeah. That's wild. <laughs> It's ridiculous. Um, I learned something about Al Kalen that I, I didn't know. Um, when he was a young child, he had a foot condition and he had surgery and uh, the foot bothered him for, for much of his career. And I'm reading this here. Uh, this is a quote in, let's see, 1965 from sports writer Milton Gross, who described Al Kaline's foot by saying, and I quote, the pinky and middle finger don't touch the ground. The fourth toe is stretched. The second and third are shortened. The first and third toes overlap the second, and the fourth is beginning to overlap the big toe, which is beginning to bend to the left. And that is some sports writing. <laughs> I mean, that's that is a, a hell of a description. And obviously, like you know, he was able to play a pretty outstanding uh, outfield. The other thing that people should remember about Al Kalen, um, one of the most incredible managerial like choices I think that uh, in baseball history is in the 1968 um, uh, World Series where they were going to uh i'm trying to think of the best way to describe this they benched their shortstop ray oiler and sent the center fielder to play shortstop so that al Kalon can come back and play <laughs> this is not a center fielder who had played shortstop before i'm trying to think of like the equivalent now like mike trout came in to play shortstop just to get another outfielder in <laughs> you know what i mean that would be awesome it's um it's it's ridiculous. So anyway, I think we've agreed that Al Kalen is is outstanding and um, elite and maybe deserved more. You know, we think of him as a great person too, right? But uh, in terms of being a baseball player, somewhat underrated. Um, we try to come up with some other Hall of Famers. I mean, by definition, these guys are fantastic. But guys who aren't talked about as quickly as Ted Williams or Joe DiMaggio or Willie Mays, you know, like these inner circle guys. Um, I've got two. I'm going to start with one here. Eddie Matthews. Eddie Matthews. Uh, Hall of Famer, 512 career home runs. Outside of being a Hall of Famer, do you know what cool trivia question Eddie Matthews is the answer to? Uh, first cover of Sports Illustrated. Oh, okay. Well, then he's the answer to two cool trivia questions. I was going to say. I'm like, I'm 90, I'm 90% sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this up clearly. I was going to say he is the only man to play for the Braves in Boston, Milwaukee, and Atlanta. Last year in Boston, their first year in Atlanta. Uh, and all the years between. Eddie Matthews is arguably the second greatest third baseman of all time, I think, depending on how you classify Alex Rodriguez. Um, if you were to look at like wins above replacement, 96 wins above replacement, Mike Schmidt at the top with 107. Uh, Eddie Matthews, like I said, 512 home runs, came to the plate 10,000 times. He is, you know, in a, let's see, in a million time all-star. I don't have it up in front of me. Uh, Eddie Matthews was, let's see, a 12-time All-Star, two-time World Series. He's just, I don't know, he's one of these guys that we uh, we don't talk about enough. And somehow, I know times were different back in the day. When he was elected into the Hall of Fame, he only received 301 of the 379 ballots. <laughs> so uh, for all the angst over Derek Jeter, this was uh, a much more egregious thing. Who do you got? Uh, well, I was going to say confirmed. First cover of Sports Illustrated, the date was uh, August 16th, 1954. So there's two two cool pieces of trivia for um for Mr. Matthews. Um, actually, sticking, sticking on third base, another like kind of Hall of Famer I think is a little bit underrated is Mike Schmidt because I actually think he is 
again, putting a rod in sort of a, you know, sort of a hybrid shortstop third base role is kind of, you know, kind of nebulous. Like to me, Mike Schmidt is almost, you know, like by far the, the, not, not by far, he's clearly the best third baseman of all time. And I just think that like, he's inner circle hall of fame in a way that maybe isn't really fully appreciated. I, you know, like he had some insane years, not to mention he won MVP on a team that won the world series. And I think that that sort of kind of gets lost so for some, for whatever reason. I mean, yes, he's a hall of famer and he's revered. It just never feels to me like his, his dominance and consistency and greatness is ever fully appreciated. Like you look at his baseball reference page, it's like a lot of black ink, three time MVP winner. Um, so he's to me just feels like never really talked about in that same quite pantheon of like the absolute inner circle. And to me, he definitely belongs. I'm also going to throw out some love for Eddie Collins. Um, this is real all time now. Eddie Collins played from 1906 to 1930. He is a Hall of Famer. Uh, he, Eddie Collins played so long ago that he actually passed away in Mickey Mantle's rookie season. This is how long we're going here. Um, but Eddie Collins, uh, a career on base percentage of 424. I know this is obviously a very different time in baseball. He is also the career uh, leader, all-time leader for sacrifice hits, mostly bunts, I'm assuming, with 512. Um, Eddie Collins, I'm looking at this, look at a list in his prime of on-base percentages. They go like 451, 450, 441, 452, 460, um, on and on and on. And he is also, so far as I'm aware, the only player in baseball history to play for two different teams for at least a dozen years apiece. And now you know something about Eddie Collins. <laughs> Anybody else? Wow, that's yeah, that, that's a that's a, that's a lot more than I know about Eddie Collins. Definitely kind of underrated. I will tell one more kind of more modern player who I think sometimes get is a little I want to say underrated is actually think Randy Johnson is a little underrated. Um, I think there's a pretty uh, decent argument that his peak is maybe the best pitcher peak in history. But I think because of the fact that. It took like he had a few years where he was just kind of like wild and not that effective. And I think some people kind of wrote him off. I mean, he led the league in walks three straight years from 1990 to 1992. Um, and then he figured it out in the mid 90s. And from 1995 to 2002, he won five Cy Young Awards um, with a 261 ERA and 2,416 strikeouts in 1,763 innings. At a time when offense was exploding around baseball, like he was basically, and I think he also got overshadowed a little bit by like, Greg Maddox and Pedro Martinez were putting up like similar kinds of numbers, but his peak was actually like longer than either of those guys. Maybe their absolute apex was like a little bit better. And, but I think his, he, he lasted long. He signed a four-year contract with the Diamondbacks and won the Cyan award in every single season of that contract, which is like kind of insane to me. Um, I also think that he kind of was just maybe victimized that like there was something kind of pretty about, you know, it was almost like, it was almost kind of like, Shaquille O'Neal, where I was like, well, of course, this guy's dominant. It's like, look at him. He's like 6'10", and, you know, you, you can't really see the ball coming out of his hand. It's almost not fair. But, like, it's not his fault. Like, that's just <laughs> what he was born with, and he made the most of it. So I actually think that he's kind of considering that the the offensive era in which he dominated um, and for so long, I think he might be a little underrated. Can we get to the stupid stuff or the amazing stuff? Yes, let's get stupid. Justin Turner has uh, an incredible idea. So he was on Spectrum Sportsnet LA the other day. And he was talking about how, you know, obviously the 2020 baseball season is completely up in the air. We have no idea if or when it will be played or what form it will take. But the one thing we do know is that if there is baseball, it will have to be played a little differently. There will likely be a lot of games condensed into a short time. There will likely be double headers. There will likely be very few days off. And so his point is that 
in such a scenario, you can't really have like these 18, 19 inning marathon games that we have. Like imagine having a doubleheader and then 10 days in a row of games and your bullpen gets totally destroyed because you went 17 or 18 innings. So his idea, and I'm quoting from here, instead of playing 17 innings, you get one extra inning, you play the 10th. And if no one scores, you go to a home run derby. You take each team's three best hitters. You give them all five outs and you see who hits the most homers. And then he continued, you want to keep fans in the stands until the end of the game. I know when I go to hockey games, I actually enjoy watching shootouts. That keeps me in my seat. So maybe a home run derby will do that as well. Uh, he followed up on Twitter. Nobody wants to see a tie. So one round, six man derby, three aside, five outs or 10 swings each. And you have your winner. And he says for this year only. And I feel like this is one of those things where the traditionalists will lose their minds if a game is decided by a home run derby. Like the game is already so homer focused as it is that to turn the actual, you know, winner or loser of a game into just a home run contest seems sort of against what like baseball has been. And yet I love it. I think he's right. I think this is amazing. I think this is the kind of thing where he says this year only, but if we did it, people would love it and we would never go back to not doing it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think that that's more what I was thinking was like that if we did try an abbreviated season, it would be a huge hit Um, for the reasons he said people would fans would stay um, knowing that like there was there was a a resolution coming. And, um, you know, it's it's common like all like sports have all sorts of different sports have different all sorts of different overtime rules, many of which are like, you know, abridged versions of the game. I mean, if the soccer World Cup can be decided, like literally the biggest sporting event in the world can be decided by penalty kicks. Like regular season baseball games can be decided by home run derby. Presumably we, in the postseason, we'd still stay with, stay with, you know, play, play extra innings till someone wins like we have traditionally. But in regular season, I would love to see, love to see something like this. Yeah. Every other sport has some kind of overtime, you know, change. Like in hockey, they go to overtime, they play a short four on four period, and then the shootout. Uh, football, they've got, you know, each team gets the ball once and then they try to score. And if they don't, it keeps going on. You know, basketball it doesn't change, but obviously there's a time limit. You know, there's only a couple minutes you get to play. Soccer has a shootout. Some of those sports like football, you can have a tie. I don't want ties in baseball. I think that is horrible. But college football, they have got those crazy overtime rules that people love. Yeah, exactly. Well, so that's the thing is, remember, there was talk last year that uh, at least in the minors, and I can't remember the specifics, but it was something along the lines of, you know, you'd start with a, a man on second. Right. And I guess that that feels more like real baseball, but I don't know that I want it to feel more like real baseball. <laughs> you know, like I think, I think he's right about the shootout aspect of it. The shootouts in hockey are awesome. And it's kind of, it's, it's, this would be super fun. And I don't think it would really happen that often. I looked this up. Um, if we went by his rule and he said, you know, you get your 10th inning, right? So how many games went 11 innings or more? Only 91 games last year went 11 innings or more. So that's something like 3% of games. That is not that many it's like i don't know two or so a a week two or three a week which doesn't seem like too many to me and if you telling if you're telling me you would not tune in to see like you know judge stanton and uh gary sanchez or whoever it would be for the yankees like load up to hit bombs i'm telling you that you're lying to me you would absolutely watch that my question would be i guess the yankees are uh, a bad team to choose for the, the question i'm about to ask do you carry a guy for that purpose like do you carry Daniel Polka where you might not have carried him on your team before? You know, if you think about the other sports, like in hockey, you have guys who are your best shootout guys, 
but they're not just there sitting for the shootout, right? They're still your second defenseman or your third line left wing or whatever the case may be. And these guys still have to be able to do something. Although in theory this year, we would probably have expanded rosters. So maybe there's a little more room for that. Um, are you, are you carrying a home run derby guy? And then that's the thing is I think American league teams would probably be self-evident because you'd already have carrying some like, you know, some DH types anyway, the national league would be, would be trickier to kind of make that decision, that distinction of like, okay, am I willing to kind of carry this player who doesn't really have a position just as kind of that bet? So we're saying 3% of game. So for the average team, that would be like, what, like five games a year. Yeah. So you know, obviously, if they had expanded rosters, that'd be part of the fun, right? Because teams would, would definitely have a couple more, like a couple uh, specialists um, on hand already, just because of having the extra the roster space. Let me throw one back at you. If we're already thinking of like hockey rules, what if let's get weird here? We went like hockey because you know hockey does the overtime first, and they go four on four. What if we said tenth inning? We play regular rules, but you only get seven fielders. I'm sorry, but you only get what seven fielders? Seven fielders. <laughs> So we sort of do like hockey, we get the progression. Like first we're going to play like a modified version of the real game before we get to like the, you know, the home run derby slash shootout, whatever, what what have you. I don't know. I feel like there's a point where you just start actually breaking baseball. You know, what if it's not just seven fielders? What if it's every, every count starts on one and one, you know what I mean? Um, over at CBS, I saw that David Sampson, who formerly was a front office executive with the Marlins was talking about this and he hated it. Uh, and his quote was, the problem is this is extremely prejudicial to teams against teams who are not built on home runs, right? So the Yankees, they come into a home run derby with Stanton, Judge, and others. They've got a plethora of people that could be in the derby, but the Marlins, okay, Miguel Rojas, Jonathan Villar, maybe Brian Anderson, uh, he says it's it's unfair to them, to which I say, yes. You know what else is prejudicial against teams that don't hit home runs? Winning baseball games. <laughs> it's, it's scoring runs. Like, I don't have a problem with that. If you can't hit home runs, you're probably not going to be a good baseball team in the first place. I have, I have no problem with that part of it whatsoever. Yeah, the shootout in hockey is prejudiced against teams that don't have skilled offensive players. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, it, it, do, you, uh, do you think his format makes sense? So he says, well, first of all, he says you get one extra inning. Is that enough, right? Do you, do you go 11 or 12 before you get there? Or is one extra inning good enough for you? Um, for me, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say yes. I think that like there's something awesome about an extra in game, but like it's to me, extra in games are kind of like position players pitching where like we remember like the one or two times where it's awesome, but like there's also a lot of games that are just like drag on and are kind of painful and no one really wants to be there. And the fans, the fans who do stay, it's like every time you know, at the bottom of the inning ends, they're kind of sitting in their stands. They're sitting in their seats, looking at their watch and like thinking like, oh, how long is it going to take me to get home? And they're just like, there's this like constant calculus. So I think one inning, to me, in this you know, fantasy world we're creating, one inning would be fine, especially for a regular season game. Uh, three aside, that seems to make sense to me. Um, five outs or 10 swings a piece. I guess you would have to have like the pitching coach or the bullpen coach or, or somebody throw, you know, it couldn't be the regular pitchers. Um, it's pretty fun to just kind of, mentally in your head go through each team and sort of you know imagine which three hitters you would take like if you're talking about you know the Mets okay Pete Alonso obviously and then what Conforto and JD Davis like do you take him over Nimmo I don't know maybe it depends on where what ballpark you're in at the time right it's there's a lot of cool strategy here this rule would certainly make carrying Cespedes on the roster a lot more uh, palatable <laughs> he's like your perfect he's your perfect example you know, and then there's the teams where like they've got four or five guys, and you're like, oh, I don't even know. Like you're the, you know, Yankees. Granted, Stanton and Judge never seem to be healthy at the same time. It's like Stanton, Judge, and Sanchez, I guess. But you know, 
trying to think of who their next cat. Maybe it is obvious it would just be those three, but um, but anyway, it's it's, it's fun. It's, it's it's fun to think about. I'm I'm trying to think also. It is, and even like some of the the weaker teams, like you know, Baltimore is obviously not a very good baseball team, but if you can get Chris Davis, uh, Trey Mancini, and all right, I'm striking out after that. But that's like that's at least a good start. You could see Chris Davis being awesome in this. Yeah, and the, the other thing that's cool about it is like one of the, one of the issues that you see in soccer, in particular in the World Cup, um, is teams will play for the shootout, and you can actually like change the way you play to like to kill time to get to a shootout, like even if you're like well-suited for like the home run derby, you can't like, Oh, we want to play. You still have got to get the three outs to get, to get to that, um, you know, get through 10 innings. So it's like, you can't like kind of like game, game the rules so that you can cater to your, your home run driven, your home run driven roster. So I, I like that aspect of it too. I know that you said this probably wouldn't be something we'd want to see in the postseason, And I think you're right about that, but tell me there wasn't at least a part of you in the 15th inning or so of that Red Sox Dodgers game a couple years ago that I thought to yourself, God, it's like three o'clock in the morning. Um, maybe we should figure out a way to, to end this game. I mean, again, you know, as I said, the, hockey has always been very like, you know, strict, oh, you know, playoff hockey. We play until someone scores a goal. But I mean, soccer, World Cup, play, you know, penalty kicks, even tennis, tennis, all the Grand Slams many years ago switched to have fifth set tie breaks because matches went too long. And Wil- Wimbledon was like, no, we refused to have fifth set tie breaks. And then like, Wimbledon had many started like in the men's side where the serve dominates. You'd start getting these matches like the famous, you know, John Isner match a few years ago where it was like the fifth set was like 45 to 43. And it was just insane. And even Wimbledon caved two years ago and made it so that like after 12, if it's 12, 12 in the fifth set in games, they will then do a tiebreaker. So even then they, they, they've like, they've like found their limit, you know, which is the equivalent of maybe like, you know, 12-12 would be the equivalent of like, you know, the, the 12th inning or the 13th inning in baseball. So even they have like sort of found their their point where they're willing to kind of change their rules. So I guess, you know, at some point in theory, um, it wouldn't be so crazy for baseball to do it. But then this kind of goes back to the conversation earlier about the bracket and purists and baseball and how things like this generally have a harder time getting traction than they do in other sports. So we're both on board with this. And I imagine we also both agree there's just no way this is going to happen. <laughs> but I do think the fact that a, a popular star player is the one pushing this actually maybe helps down the road a little bit. Maybe he's not the only one who feels that way. All right, let's finish up with some real silliness. I'm I'm really excited about this. Um, this If you haven't seen this article on MLB.com, please go check it out because I really enjoyed reading it. It was by Matt Monaghan. Um, he wanted to know the most important question of our time. How many toothpicks has Dusty Baker chewed on a baseball field? Dusty Baker, now Houston manager, popular for always having a toothpick in his mouth. So not only did Matt go and do a bunch of uh, hilarious math, he actually hooked up with Brian McTaggart, our Astros.com beat writer, earlier in the spring and had him go and ask Dusty Baker about it. And I was I was fascinated to see Baker gave great quotes. You know, this is like an insane question. I sort of sort of thought he'd like laugh Brian out of the room, uh, but he seemed really excited to talk about it. So. Matt, before I go through the math here, is there is there any way you could possibly uh, guesstimate what you think this would be? Now, I'll give you just a little bit of backstory here. Dusty Baker has been a manager for 22 seasons, all right? And he said he never did it while he played, only as a manager, 22 seasons. Where would you guesstimate number of toothpicks chewed over that time? I mean, what, what I, what I, the thing is, and what I didn't realize, like, I, I've never really thought about the quality of toothpicks. The only time I ever chew toothpicks is, like, when I leave a diner. And they've got those really cheap t- toothpicks and like you're done with it within like 
you know, five minutes. So originally when I, when I thought of this question, I was like, well, he must, he must chew like one an inning, you know, he must chew like, you know, 10 a game at least. Um, so my, my, my guess would have been way higher than what it actually turns out to be. I think just because I would have assumed that it'd be like, okay, you know, 10 times 162, he's, you know, he's, he's chewing on 1600 a season and, you know, times, you know, we're like, I would have said like, you know, times 10 seasons managing 16, 20, you know, 30,000 toothpicks in his career. But apparently that is not the case. So two per game, here's the math, two per game, uh, 162 games per season. So 324 yeah. per season times 22 seasons. So that's 7,128 regular season. Uh, he's also managed in 55 postseason games. Now here, Matt Modigan uh, increased the number to four for pressure. As you can see, this is not the most scientific thing in the world, but I, I get it. You know, we've we've seen Dusty Baker in some incredibly pressure-filled games with the Cubs, with the Giants, uh, you name it. So that's 220 more. Uh, you can add that to the 7,128 from before. And the final number, 7,300. And 48 toothpicks. Uh, now, again, they asked Dusty about this. This is my favorite part, that Dusty Baker, 70-year-old guy who's been in the game forever, accomplished as manager, as a player, uh, they asked him about toothpicks. And what he basically said was, uh, you know, he, he started doing it when he was managing the Giants because it was hard for him to floss. And then he started talking about not only the brand, but when he tried to get an endorsement deal. And this is what Baker said. I use Tea Tree Oil Mint Toothpicks. The brand is Tea Tree Therapy. I get them at Whole Foods. They're not cheap. And then parentheses, Dusty said he asked the company about an endorsement deal, but they declined saying, we don't need help selling toothpicks, which is my favorite part. Um, so now we know how many there are, 7,348 toothpicks. But Matt Monaghan went the extra mile. He went to the website and he looked up how long the toothpicks are. They are 3.3 inches long. Multiply that by Baker's 7,348 toothpicks. We are now up to over 24,000 inches of toothpicks, over 2,000 feet of toothpicks, four-tenths of a mile of toothpicks. Uh, that comes out to 577 baseball bats, seven football fields, 1.3 Empire State Building. I love this so much, and yet it is also so stupid, and it's only April 6th, and this is already what we're talking about. It's it's going to be a long <laughs> spring, man. <laughs> oh, good times. All right, now you know something about Dusty Baker's uh, toothpicks. We are uh, going to continue doing shows here for the foreseeable future. We've got a lot of, uh, of good ideas. Uh, not that we've shared them tonight, I can promise you that, uh, for guests and some other topics. Um, but as we've talked about for a while, uh, this is not a stats show for the moment. There's just not new stats happening. So we are um, trying to find ways to enjoy ourselves talking baseball. And I know that I always do uh, when I spend 35 minutes or so with Matt. And thanks to those of you who have reached out saying thank you for uh, giving us something fun to talk about. That is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. We will catch you next time.